Hey, before we kick off the episode, I'd like to let you know that nothing Sam and I say during our series on investing should be seen as investment advice. Each person has a different financial situation, and what makes sense for Sam or me might not, and probably will not, make sense for you. We are not financial advisors, and you should do your own research before making any investment. Know that all investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, and always remember that if it sounds too good to be true, it is probably not true. Please enjoy the rest of the show. This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative, and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hey there, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Nico. As usual, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host Sam and Today, in this part of our series on investing, we have just finished reading The Education of a Value Investor, My Transformative Quest for Wealth, Wisdom, and Enlightenment, authored by Guy Spear. And fun fact, when we started this podcast, which was at the beginning of 2020, Sam and I hadn't seen each other until last week. Last week, I went to London for NFT London, and we saw each other, and it was very nice. And so, uh, yeah. We spoke so many times and didn't see each other at all. Mm, yes, and life changes. Exactly. One of us has got married. We've both got long hair. We've changed careers a few times. Yeah. I run a startup. Yeah. Nick has started another podcast. I've been working with a few different people. Got super deep on NFTs and now works as an investor for a super cool VC. Life. So, yeah. Start podcasts apparently is a good one. If we didn't start our podcast, I wouldn't have been a VC right now. No joke. It's so crazy. Yeah. Hopefully, that's for the best. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. We'll but uh, yeah, talking about what's the best when it comes to investing, maybe let's talk about the book. Sure. <laughs> so sure. Um, The Education of a Value Investor. You want to you give us like a very brief summary? Yeah. The Education of a Value Investor is a brief but insightful book that is kind of the author's biography it's got some tutorials around how to be a better investor, but also how to like live your life and be a nicer person and optimize your life for you around like how you work and the things you pay attention to. And he covers from like when he went to university, he was quite smart and got taught certain things around economics and how like the things work. He then went into banks and was like, oh my God, these things are really corrupt, but that's all he knew and just carried on being in that system and thought there was a lot of flaws with the way they valued companies and things he got quite into like Warren Buffett was doing he made friends with nice people who taught him to be a nicer person and then value other things and he got into value investing because of realizing that the markets were not as efficient as he was taught and that like there was a lot of opportunities to see companies that really were valuable and invest in them and he started focusing on that he then a friend wanted to have a lunch date with Warren Buffett which he managed to get by bidding on this charity each auction each year that Warren Buffett does and that sort of changed his mindset around like what is valuable even more so and he got really really deep into value investing became very good at it and also learned about his own sort of flaws as a worker he had the attention deficit disorder and um, set up an office that really really worked for him he lived in like a city away from all the hustle and bustle and hype of all these other bankers getting FOMO about different investments and 
just became a nice person. He also did a lot of writing of letters to like everyone he knew or met, just sort of being like a nice guy and bothering to follow up with things and offering to help people and stuff and just tried to give as much value as he could wherever he went. And that really paid itself back in dividends. Like the whole karma is like a true thing. It's a lovely book. And hmm. I felt confident that I could maybe do some more value investing if I wanted to, but I probably don't have the time to really get deep into companies and definitely should do more writing of letters, which is something I used to do and not so much these days. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should give like a brief introduction to like what value investing is. Yeah. Uh, we already covered it, uh, especially in the book. Um, the edu- No, that does this book. Yeah, yeah. It was a book, book by... The uh, first one. Um, Benjamin Graham, yes. right? Yes, um, we read that book. I've I've got it. I've got it here. It is <laughs> The Intelligent yeah. Investor. And it wasn't That's the first it. because it was the second in the series. Yeah. So basically, value investing is very simply that you you look at companies and you only invest in companies that you feel are severely undervalued compared to their they're actually value so underpriced i would say yeah so the market underprices yeah so um, based on don't realize how much money they're making what their futures and potentially is directly in the next few years on like their, their plans and what the rest of the market is doing if you think people are missing a trick and stuff yeah so like something like tesla which is sort of massively overvalued based on how much it earns and like it's worth exactly. more than like the entire all other automobile companies put together would not be something you would invest in because of it just doesn't make any sense financially directly. Yeah. Although as a brand, it's like crazy awesome. So mm-hmm. that's a different type of investing, but it wouldn't be value investing. Exactly. So it basically boils down to investing in very boring companies because boring companies are usually the one that like no one gets excited about. But these are often cash cows, you know, companies that make a lot of money but have, are still at very attractive valuations. And that's why, for example, people like Warren Buffett tend to invest in companies like railroad companies, which are extremely boring, not exciting at all. They never, like their revenues or profits never increase by more than a few percent. But it's very hard to fail as a railroad company because there's no competition. No one's going to build a new network mm. of railroads to compete with you. And so they have like a very, very big moat. And as long as, as these companies are managed well, these are very attractive and I mean, you're not going to 20x your money, but you are going to steadily grow and you might 2x your money over over 10 years, which is, I think, a pretty good result. Yeah. And it's done very well for Warren Buffett, for example. Exactly. But he's been doing that for literally 60, 70 years continuously. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. So uh, let's let's talk a bit about our takeaways from the book. What's one that, that stood out for you? I guess the initial one around like what you kind of get initially taught by sort of schools and your education systems often not really that valuable in real life and you get into real life and it's kind of quite different and you can kind mm. of have these sort of mindsets that you get taught that are not valuable for you and you need to kind of question and always be learning. I mean, I mean, I kind of thoroughly agreed with that anyway, but it was nice to see his examples of stuff in an area that I maybe wasn't quite so aware where it happens around like what you get taught is in economics and finance universities mm. and things and you get to banks and they're doing like completely stupid stuff and they're just sort of investing in bad companies but like actually just it's all under the rug kind of deals and things trying to make stuff look good and then just boosting money and it was like yeah i guess i've seen that in other areas I haven't realized it was that bad in banks and things but it makes complete sense mm-hmm. i found it very talebian so he yeah basically got his graduate or undergraduate degree from Oxford in the UK and then he got an Harvard MBA uh, a few years after 
like he came to the realization after doing investment banking for a while that that's like what he got taught. All these models actually are very, very or a bad way to look at the world because they're so flawed and so limited in their scope. And there's so many factors that are not taken into account in these, you know, very simple models. Yeah. And so, yeah, I found it maybe it reminded me of our favorite, you know, philosopher, modern philosopher. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Taleb. If you want to listen more about Taleb, we have a whole season available, <laughs> like a year or two or so ago. Yeah. But yeah, I like the point around, so he was very much believing in the efficient market hypothesis directly, like prices are already baked in, like the market is, is meant to be efficient, and then realized that's the complete opposite. Because what he was doing was literally breaking the efficiencies of the market with the banks where they were sort of saying the wrong things about companies and making them look good that weren't good look good to boost their prices and stuff so they're already corrupting the market so that means the market is already wrong and that means that there must be companies that are therefore undervalued that are doing good that you can then invest in that will be a good company for the long run and they will return like sort of dividends each year and like slowly people will eventually see its value and it will the efficiency will happen over time and you will then do well with that investment so um mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a nice way of showing that example. Some other things, as in, like I think I mentioned around just who you're around and where you get your advice from and things. So when you're in the banking area, that was just like a, so much more hype. And if same way like cryptocurrencies and stuff, you're just like constantly buying new coins because someone's hyping it and stuff. And you're like, crap, you get FOMO. And you should try and discuss your ideas with people that don't have anything to do it so he would often talk to ceos about like what they're doing with their companies because he thought like that's the best research you can do but often that person would be like a little bit deluded about how amazing their company was or something and you'd get like overexcited and what you should really do is be very analytical about it and go through all their reports you should develop a checklist this is something he was very very important on around like you shouldn't rush these decisions you should that's what a checklist is for is to make you just go through all of the correct practices and be like okay does this have this thing? Does it have that thing, etc. In the same way, like if you're going to fly a plane, you don't go and go like, oh, I think the weather looks good. Let's go flying. You actually sort of go, okay, is this engine correct? Is this thing right? Has I checked the brakes on these things? And you sort of have a, a very long checklist to make sure you don't have a plane crash that you just have to go through. And that's what you should do mm-hmm. with your investments if you don't want to have a bit of a crash on doing the wrong thing. I thought yeah. that was quite good and I should probably have a better checklist for how I invest in things because I <laughs> can be a bit like, I'm uh, a bit busy. Well, I'll just <laughs> this looks good. <laughs> and yeah. um, yes, so true. probably not a strategy for life. I've recently been added by um, an ex-colleague of mine to a Telegram group with a bunch of people who like to, to trade in the crypto industry. Yeah. And when I say trade, I'm speaking like leveraged trades and stuff. Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, what a trade is, if you're trading, you're basically trying to time the market, right? So you're you think that something was oversold, which means that the price is lower than it should be, then you you go along. So basically, you buy that cryptocurrency and you expect it to go up. And then when it goes up too much, you start selling. And so basically, it's like you're chasing the buy low, sell high. Or if you're going very dangerous and you're shorting stuff, you're trying to sell high and then you know buy whatever, like buy, buy back low. And so I noticed that being in that group and seeing these people, so I've always been clear, like... I've made a rule for myself. I will never, ever do a leveraged trade nice. in anything. So this is like one of the rules that I have. Like there's not a lot of me, like for me to be worried about. And yeah. so like taking leverage to potentially increase my return is not worth the risk. Because the thing is, the moment you use leverage, your potential losses can skyrocket. Pretty much the same with going short. You know, if, if you go long a stock, 
let's say you invest a thousand euros or dollars in a stock, worst thing that can happen is that the stock goes to zero and you lose yeah. your thousands, your initial input. If you short a stock, in theory, a stock has unlimited upside. So if you shorted Tesla when it was founded, for example, or, or even only two years ago, you might have lost way more than your initial like input yeah. or what you were running. So for. that's why the whole um, GameStop thing happened because the the redditors were like, "Hey, we could lose these bankers way more money than they they initially wanted to put at risk on shorting yeah, exactly. this stock that wasn't that great." And they sort of made the stock go up way loads. So like all their shorts just like completely fucked themselves. But yeah. you can be slightly protective on these things, as in you can only, let's say, you can put a hundred dollars as your leverage, and you can just say that, like, if it goes past fifty dollars in the wrong direction, you just sell it straight away. But that means that you actually don't have that much. So if you're using fifty leverage, example, so like if your hundred dollars, if like the actual thing went up by two percent, like you'd actually get sort of another two hundred. Well, you get like four hundred dollars back. So you times it by fifty. Maybe I've got like, yeah, maybe 100 back because you can't do it by 50. But if it goes down by $1, you're already like minus 50. So you have to sell immediately if it's gone down by like 1%. So you can stop yourself from losing more money than you put in. But it's much more likely that you will lose it because mm-hmm. you've got like a very small margin of error for it to go down, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, um, exactly. So for example, for me, so I'm a strong believer in Bitcoin. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sitting on certain holdings of Bitcoin. And so in theory, I could say like, I could, as you said, you know, leverage it because I'm, I'm a strong believer. But the thing is that it could be that Bitcoin in a few months is worth $5,000. Yeah. And so if you leverage it, it could be that your whole position gets liquidated yeah, and yeah. you end up with nothing. And so that's why, for me, I'm like a long-only investor. So mm. I just buy something. And if it goes down for a bit, because I, I, I'm not smart enough to time the market. Yeah, yeah. I also don't believe that, Yeah. you know, I, I know a lot of people who have like these Fibonacci things on their... The yeah, yeah. Are like, oh, yeah. There's so many, retraced. there's so many ways you can draw a pattern and like, well, it's certainly six, it perfectly fits the pattern from like up to now. So yeah. therefore, it must do this next, and then like, it always goes different. But then they make a new pattern and it looks the same, and you're like, you, you're just drawing pretty lines, mate. You literally have no idea what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, look, this is a head and shoulder pattern, or oh, this is a clearly a cup and handle, so I should <laughs> yeah. along with two x leverage. Yeah. I'm like, dude. Anyway, so. As I said, I'm in this group and I, I can just, I can feel the influence. I can feel myself yeah, the by mate. just reading them. And also like the only thing they share is like their wins, right? Then uh, they, yeah, now exactly. and then they, they share like, oh, I just lost a bit of money on this or, or a lot of money on this. But mostly they're like, oh yeah, I just leveraged this 10x and I wrote it up, you know, uh, until I, I got like 80 times my position back. And I'm like, I read it. And although I'm, I, I consider myself a fairly rational actor, I'm like... Oh, damn, I, w- I want some of that as well. And so I guess if I would take this book too hard, I would just leave the group. I think it's going to be, you know, probably strictly better for me mm. uh, as an investor. And I find that really like, and I think that's key to like almost everything in life, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the things and the people you surround yourself with are going to influence you more than, than you know. And I think it's Warren Buffett who said like the weighted average of your five closest, I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's not Warren Yeah, big time. He probably thinks it as well. Anyway, so you're like the weighted average of your five closest friends, basically. Yeah, and it sort of makes a bit of sense, but like, okay, it's probably not that much. But like, if you live with someone that's musical and you want to do more music, you'll do a lot more music. If you live with someone that's constantly in crypto and you're kind of slightly interested in making more money, you'll be be doing crypto within like a month, like for sure. Mm. And if you live with people that are constantly If you're friends with me. Yeah. If you hang out with me, you end you're up getting get NFTs. Crypto. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when it's your birthday, I send you an NFT. Yeah. That's how it goes. <laughs> That's great. You can handle that. Yeah. I, um, 
it has since been going a few hundred views, but I'm like, actually, I'm starting to feel a bit worried at this point. I'm like, I, yeah, well, all the collection ones are just sort of starting to look a bit silly. I'm still trying to understand the gaming ones a bit more, but I just don't game at all, so I find it a bit harder to really, like, is this this one that's, like, got a bit of good marketing, or is this this one that's, like, fundamentally got some good marketing and people will actually play and use it and it's going to go up lots? Hmm. So, like, I mean, I trust your advice, but... Sam, yes. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Today, from starting from today, who do you think will have the best return over the next five years? People investing in tech or people doing value investing? Ooh, good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, from five years ago, probably tech to now. And so you sort of want to say that's, the same. That's easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looking back, it's the easy part. And <laughs> you're like, forward. well, is there a crash coming and stuff? Because then the value investing definitely makes more sense. And seems like there's certainly we haven't had any major crashes for a while yeah, the market's going a bit silly and certainly on the crypto side of things yeah I, I feel like tech is just because it's so much more scalable over a time window has potential to explode more so i would be i would guess tech and my own personal portfolio would be like split as in like i'd have some in property some in value investing and then like being a young risky person i still probably have 50 percent of that in tech with potential to like bigger returns but maybe not if that makes sense mm-hmm. what, what are your thoughts yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah I, find, I find it really hard as well so i mean i'm a technologist yeah. and i'm also a very strong believer in the impact that technology will have and like the way we will spend our time in the next five years is going to change drastically but i feel like that's already priced in Mm, yeah, I mean, the values valuations of companies like Apple and Facebook, and Meta, and also certain you know cryptocurrencies. I feel like the pricing already assumes that they're going to reach this super high level, and so I actually think that overall value investing is probably a better strategy. Also, because I was I expect there's going to be like a major crash anytime like soon, and so it could be that like both tech investors and value investors lose money. But the value investors will lose less money almost by definition because tech has like a larger beta. So it reacts harder to any market mm. movements. I don't know. At least that's what I think. So I, I would actually say, and, and I don't consider myself a value investor. So honestly, like I think Warren Buffett will perform better in the next five years than I would. Although I perform better than Warren Buffett in the, in the previous five years. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's because also like I'm just into crypto and then I mean, yeah. So I just got lucky. Like I'm, I'm never like not as smart or as good an investor as Warren Buffett. So five years is too short a time frame to be able to, you know, think about someone as a, as a good or a bad investor. Mm. Yeah, I think he talks about this in the book around mistakes are one of the most powerful forms of learning, and going through adversity just pushes you to your limit where you learn much faster. But you should recognize that you learn from things and do everything you can to learn from other people's mistakes. So we should probably try and actually really understand like the market bubbles of sort of 2000 and like how that yeah. went because of people talk about, well, I lived through this, I lived through that. And you're like, I didn't. I mean, I lived, I lived through like the past crypto crash and like the 2008 crisis. And I sort of vaguely knew what was going on, like the 2008 one, but like not that much. Mm-hmm. And so like the more of these things you can sort of really experience and sort of relate to properly and have as like fundamental models in your brain, the the better. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should go a bit more into um, some crashes and things in history, perhaps. Yeah. There's some lessons for ourselves in this season. I actually really feel like in the blockchain, in the crypto space, 
um, I feel like we're currently living through the dot-com bubble again. Yeah, definitely. Where dot-com bubble people realize like this has a potential to be big, right? Every company that did something, wanted to do something with the web, you know, added the dot-com to their name. And like looking back, the internet did majorly change the way we live our lives. Yeah. And that's going to be the same with the whole crypto craze. But I think, yeah, a lot of the projects and companies right now who are into this stuff will probably not be the ones, you know, making these huge, huge changes yeah, or advancements. Sure. Or, and you know, yeah. so I managed to go back from Web Summit and like everyone was talking about blockchain. They were talking about NFTs. Mm. So many companies just having money being thrown at them because they were like, oh, we're doing something. Hey, it's going to be, we'll have an NFT on it or it's going to have something on blockchain. But like they hadn't fundamentally yeah. changed anything major. It doesn't make useful. And like I sent you a good blog around like the whole technical adoptions of things and stuff like the web of, okay, it took a while for the banking system to move on to that thing, but you sort of, you initially go crazy about it, but it's not actually being used and people overhype it, but it takes like Mm -hmm. a lot of years for it to actually sort of become the fundamental layer that like is the building blocks for like society and stuff. And so like Mm -hmm. crypto is very far away from being like the building blocks of what we do everything upon, but it will get there probably. Yeah and will be super valuable but investing in most things in it right now is probably not going to be that useful in sort of 20 years time like if you invested in most companies in the web and stuff back in like 1998 most of them don't exist anymore like Mm -hmm. they sort of died but a few of them stuck around but then there's been so many since that have become huge as well and you don't really know what it's going to get used for like when steve jobs first invented like the computer screen and things and was like well people were going to use it to like manage like their recipes or something and he didn't really know like exactly what it was for but he knew it was the future and how like he would do things and um yeah it's just kind of funny so yeah i, I fully agree with very much in the very first adoption phase of people being like super excited and it's not really being used for everything it's going to be mm-hmm. done for but big tangent though yes <laughs> good tangent uh what else have we learned from this i don't know what else you want to discuss? I definitely want to discuss his his working setup, but sure, let's go into that. I have the, the, this on my list. I have three points on my list, major points. But let's talk about that. So, you know, setting up your environment. Yeah. So as we already mentioned, like don't talk to people who are going to sort of pollute your kind of views and things, or people that have anything like with a specific axe to grind in an area, and select like your friends wisely. But then his office wise, he just knew that he get distracted easily, and this was back from like a while ago but with email and stuff. And that's only got like more and more presence. So he, he has like a slightly awkward to use desk that he had to stand up on, but like stand kind of awkwardly. And that's the only place he'd let himself answer his email so that he wouldn't spend too much time like doing it and would just be quick about it and efficient and he wouldn't like go onto extra links and all that crap. And then he'd have another area of his office that was like comfy and stuff that he'd like want to spend time in. And he'd print off his reports from different companies and he'd go and read them there and it would give him the space and time to like digest them properly with concentration and and, and like sit and think about things without extra distractions because you can just go through the whole day feeling busy doing fuck all when you're on your computer and his other thing is he would often have a nap in the afternoon and he found that like he spoke to a lot of, of, of the best value investors and like i think like nine out of ten of them all had a nap usually after lunch and stuff instead of sat on the sofa if they're feeling a bit tired because he's like there's no point working through if you feel a bit tired when you can have a nap for half an hour and feel super refreshed and have way better concentration for the afternoon. So that was cool. And then 
he also moved countries to be some. So yeah, I think he was it Switzerland or Austria. I can't remember. Uh, Zurich in uh, yeah, yeah. Switzerland. In Switzerland. Yeah. So he moved somewhere where he didn't have like lots of friends and there wasn't like lots of events going on that he was excited to go and attend and stuff. So he had like more time for himself and being introverted and doing the kind of work that was the most valuable for him, which is value investing. Mm. So if you're someone that's extroverted or you're doing a different type of job, like obviously that advice might not be very useful, but working out what it is that you're trying to do that gives you the most happiness and the rewards and like what the actual real fundamental setup of how your life is, I think is really important. So I think that's one of the big decisions you can do is like what your career is, where you live, who you spend time with, and like really going into those big decisions and thinking about them at a greater depth is really important because you kind of just go through life bumbling along the way and just let life happen to you and being a bit more mm-hmm. um, constructive about what you do with it is, I think, important. So for him, yeah. that was not being too busy all the time so that he could do the things that, that were good for him yeah and i don't think we mentioned this but his job is like he has a fund a value investing fund pretty much very similar to warren buffett or um, monish pabrai which is, is one of like one of, of the other great value investors out there and so that's his job right he he looks at companies and decides to invest in them mm. and so and that's why he set up money in his fund exactly. that he feels responsible for yeah and uh, yeah setting up your environment super interesting like for me what I should take away from this is I should probably, like, I have to do quite a lot of reading. I have to go through quite a lot of decks for my VC job. And I do it on my computer, so I look at a screen. And so, yeah, it's, I probably it's aggressive, be way it's more... It's not nice. It's not pleasant doing that. You want to rush it when you're doing it. Yeah, not only not nice, it's also, like, distracting, right? Yeah. I have YouTube, I have, like, Twitter, I have Facebook, I have LinkedIn, I like... All of these social, like, and I do that the whole time. I'm like, you know, they have this slight itch of boredom. Boom, I'm, I'm doing something else. Yeah. Um, and so, like, for me, it'd probably be way better if I had, like, a corner here in my apartment, like, a comfortable chair. Yeah. And, like, a very good printer. And I just print out a deck, you know. And one of the reasons I don't do that is because I am I hate to waste. Yeah. So, I have it with food. I have it with freaking toilet paper. I'll minimize how much toilet paper I use. It's, it's I'm really bad at that stuff. Mm. And so it's same with like I would never, almost never like print stuff just because I hate, hate yeah. waste in general. You can get like recycled paper. You can double side it, make it smaller. Yeah. stuff. Um, I guess it's like the ink. The other. So one thing I used to do was because of I started this because of one of my friends that I made had been writing a travel blog for five years, and like I met him. He was super cool. He wrote really great things. But I was like, I'm never going to read all this, but I'd love to because this is like the same value as reading a book for me. So what I did was mm-hmm. I built this like scraping tool that would take someone's website put all of their blogs together into a PDF and then I'd email it to my Kindle. And I started doing that for mm. other blogs that I found like were fun. And that way I could read a website's blog that was good, but read it like a book on my Kindle, like at night or like if I went to a cafe and things. So you could just send them to your Kindle or like your iPad. If I, I don't have anything on my iPad, basically, apart from Kindle. Um, <laughs> so it's basically just a big Kindle and <laughs> yeah. you could then like That's walk awesome. out the house go to a park bench take a notebook and sort of just be in your zone for like an hour or two or like go to a cafe or a library or something if you don't want to really print brilliant. that's a nice way yeah. of doing it because I'm guessing that's those, actually those a documents good idea. right that you have yeah, yeah yeah I mean it might not be ideal for like decks and stuff yeah and oh, also well, the iPad's fine for decks yeah. you can send them yeah there. that's true that's true but it, yeah that, yeah it's a good good point I like it. That that's something I'm gonna consider. Mm. Yeah. I mean you can try uh, it. anyway, try that's around. otherwise, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Good idea.
So, all right. Well, with um, decks, it's, anything you'd like? It's almost like it's not terrible to be slightly distractible in that, like, if it's a really good deck, you should probably be like, shit, I need to know about this company. Whereas if it's like a bit and you're getting distracted, like, it's probably fine because the company's not worth speaking. Although, actually, yeah, I mean, <laughs> going back into sort of startup investing here, I think judging startups based just on their decks is kind of a bit of a false economy because some people will just sort of pay to make it really nice. Or something and maybe don't actually have the best business idea but they just know that like it gets you just they just know how to get investment but they maybe don't know so much about running their business whereas other people mm. maybe just have like an amazing business idea they're super good they're, they're really focused on building the business but actually like showing off to investors and things isn't such like a hot topic for them and i think you can get swayed by by decks and stuff so uh anyway untangent ourselves back unless you wanted to discuss that a bit more <laughs> No, 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 no. I was going to talk about one of the other takeaways that I, I took from his book. Sure. So he talked about different companies that I'd looked at. And um, he's quite open about some of the investments that he made that were bad. And one of the investments that he made was Tupperware. And so, mm. so basically Tupperware sells really expensive plastic boxes. Yeah. And one of the things that Tupperware is great at is motivating you to pay for it right they organize these house parties and everyone gets like a little present and because of that little present they want to reciprocate and they're willing to you know buy stuff because they're not that expensive and so they have a like a great sales model but the stuff they sell is, is just really expensive and so his his point is try to invest in companies that really add value and for me mm. i mean we've already discussed value <laughs> a lot in previous episodes and so that's like value is the word like I keep thinking about. And that is for me like the main driver behind my whole investment thesis is like, okay, what kind of value is being added? And I think like the way people assess value is, is changing, especially with our lives going more and more digital. So where something is valuable, but it's not tangible. And that's something that people still cannot get their heads around. Hence NFTs and hence like the divisiveness around them. But anyway, that is really like something that I already had in the back of my head, but it's good to, I'm always happy, you know, to read these things, smart people also agreeing. And yeah, about this sure. Well. As I to add a bit more context to their conversations and they were one of the first ones on the market doing that and they, they were growing really fast and like, it was like, okay, there's this whole like sales chain built in, people were doing these things. Then after a few years, loads of people just replicated it and like, it's just plastic, you mm. can do it super cheaply. And so like, it went through this really amazing brand hype, had the perfect brand, but then actually after a while, people were like, well, I can still buy this other thing. I just want something to keep my food fresh. It doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> and so you might say it's perhaps the same with Teslas and like they're the mass, they're the brand leader and like they sort of defined the EV car market, but mm -hmm. all other manufacturers are going to build cars that are just as good. I mean, like Volkswagen, they build much more reliable cars in general. America has never, no offense, America, but your cars haven't been quite as reliable as the German manufacturers. I personally <laughs> own a French car. It has broken the entire year. I've owned it. <laughs> and um, I'm not exactly the best car buyer, that's for sure. But Tesla currently, like, the cars aren't actually super reliable. They do what they can to really boost the marketing, like hitting the sales things. And they've always got like the fastest production car coming out that sort of makes them look super cool. But they're still growing as quickly as possible and they're skipping some things. Whereas... Volkswagen, I feel like probably going to end up doing like perhaps better cars and like Honda and those kind of people that have just been building super reliable cars for years and know how to do this. These processes will come on to the market with cars that are cheaper and as good and look cool. So, can I, can I give you a counter argument? Sure. Do you know what Tesla's marketing budget is? Um, zero. 
Yes. But so they don't spend any money on marketing, which in like mm. marketing is literally like it's useless, right? You don't add any, you know, value to the product that you're actually building. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying well, like it's zero, but like they still host like ceremonies and do like big unrevealing things like Apple does with their sort of things and they they invested in having well, actually it's it's a good investment, but like the way that they've done their car stores like in town it's like going to an Apple store when you go to a Tesla, whereas like current car manufacturers like are usually out of town where it's like it's a big sort of thing and it's not actually the best way of doing it. People want to go and see it in the place where they actually are. People don't really want to go out of town to just go and try cars and things. So they're doing the right job of the, the marketing they're doing, even they're not even calling it a marketing budget. I mean, I still am an investor in Tesla more than I am in any other car manufacturer. <laughs> I'm just saying... This is the value investing in the long term. You can see why so many sort of longer term investors are being like Tesla's stupid and they're shorting it mm. as a theory. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why I'll. I don't think I'll ever invest in banks, for example. Yeah, because I think banks almost add no value. It's highly unlikely for me to invest in a lot of intermediaries. Mm. Right, like, I mean, the business model of banks is is very complex. But one of the ways they make money is they, you know, they take in people's money, they pay interest on that, and they give out loans, and people pay interest on them. And so people have to pay way more for the loans that they get than people receive when interest-wise when they put money in the, in the bank, right? Mm. Um, and that is, I mean, not exactly how it works. But so I, I think all of these types of businesses or business models are going to get disrupted with decentralized technology. And again, I'm talking about blockchain. I know. Um, <laughs> but there's going to be a moment where, you know, Sam is going to want to have a loan and I'm going to be the one giving it to him and there's going to be no one in between. And he's going to be collateralized 80% with his Bitcoin and that's going to work. I mean, it's probably not going to be perfect, at least not immediately, but that's where we're going. Yeah, for sure. And so think about value and think about when you look at a company, like where's the value being added? I might have like gotten that insight from this book when I read it years ago. So mm. like, yeah, you do seem to stick to that quite well, mostly. I think it's been a principle you followed. don't know how other things you wanted to discuss. I've got one major point otherwise from his general investing philosophy, which was only buy a stock that you're happy to hold for the next two years and you're not allowed mm. to sell. And if a mm. stock tumbles just after you buy it, you just shouldn't sell it for two years if you are value mm. investing. Whereas if you're not value investing, you're just much more at the mercy of FOMO and like, oh God, it's doing this. And you're kind of worried about what it is. Whereas if you've got like a long-term belief in something, you kind of just don't need to worry about it. And you actually, you shouldn't be stock checking the price all the time because it shouldn't matter that much as long as it was more valuable than the price that you first bought it at. And he also, this is a bit difficult for some people but he says you shouldn't buy or sell stocks when the market is open so he sets his orders like irrelevant what the market's doing so like i've got a pension sort of investing thing where like, i can't actually buy or sell anything when the market isn't open and it's like it's a bit awkward other companies kind of let you do things and you can set your buy trades or whatever but um yeah having the constant ticker in front of you and stuff you're like trying to buy at a price but it starts going up and you start chasing things and you don't necessarily need to do that it just affects your brain a bit more again Mm -hmm. So basically, you should just have a very long-term mindset on investing, which is obviously all about value investing, but just it just goes a bit more into detail on those things. And, and the philosophy of only buy things that you're willing to hold for two years, I think, is important. 
for the way I think about stocks as well, because I should do that more. And um, yeah. when I most of the things I have felt that way about things, and those ones have generally done well, stuff where I've tried to be a bit more like short term and then thinking about it, buying or selling it shorter is, just causes me more like life stress and often mm. doesn't even work anyway. <laughs> you know, um, my first stocks that I bought for myself, yeah, you know, I'm talking like five or six years ago. I think I already ha- had read this book. And so my strategy was, so basically all these super big investors like Guy Spear, like Warren Buffett, they have to publicly each quarter announce their holdings. Yeah. And so what I would do is I would look at their holdings at the end of each quarter at the stocks they bought. And then I would look at the current price. And if the current price was actually lower than the price that they bought it at or lower than the, you know, that stock had gone down still, yeah. I, would, I would buy that stock because I felt like if these smart people bought that, if it's cheaper now, then it's a good buy. So that was how I would select stocks. And then my second rule was I don't sell within two years. Nice. So I actually held on to all these stocks in two years and some of them did super and, and others did, did terribly. Overall, it was it was not bad. Yeah. Because um, that like people often, it seems logical and like I've, I kind of did the similar thing when I started, but buying a stock just because it's gone down is maybe there's a reason it's going down. <laughs> and if you're not like yeah. researching the company as a proper value investor, because of they maybe bought something based on like what they thought it was valuable, but then some news comes out or like there's something else that they they weren't expecting that then sort of makes it go lower. Although like they shouldn't still be holding it if they're thinking long term about the value of it and it's going to go down. But like a winner is more likely to still be a winner, whereas a loser is more likely to still be a loser. It's like part of the thing that Tled talks about. Mm. But yeah. like I've done similar things with some stuff. Some stuff's kind of worked really well. Like the Royal Mail went down a, like a load and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And that's gone back up by like 100%. And, and I'm like, sweet, did that, did well with that. And like a few other companies. <laughs> but that's yeah, cool. when you don't have time to really research and look at the value, it's, it's a bit hard to really know. So some kind of things yeah. like that can be fun. I really like the point. I think what I sense in the market today and, and from the people I talk to, and a lot of my friends like right now come to me and they're like, what coin can I buy that will a thousand X over the next few months? Uh, that's a question. And I feel like people are too chasing the 100 X too much. Honestly, like that money would better be invested in just like, you know, a bit of Bitcoin, a bit of ETH, maybe some smaller solid projects. Like a lending platform, for example, where you know I could lend my money to Sam or the other way around. That stuff exists, and I think you're going to do better buying those and holding on to those for like ten years than you would, you know, just chasing that one thousand x. But that's just not how our people are wired, and I think people. Um, it's really this book is, I think, coming to terms with your own psychology, the way you think, and limiting how much you can be influenced by your emotions. I think that's like the, the fundamental takeaway from this book. And then the, like half of the things he suggests is literally around just that, like how to come to terms with your weaknesses and make sure that they don't influence your results or at a minimum level, let's say. Mm, definitely. Like I, I think I'd, because it's annoying to go and research and do these things, but certainly for like crypto, something, I'd love someone that I kind of trust who's, to just have a fund that's going to like just invest in like 10 projects that could like a thousand X, but just complete like perhaps ish rather than me trying to work out what those 10 projects might be and then sort of investing in them kind of randomly and not having like a perfect, okay, I only want to put 5% of my money into these crazy thousand X. I could just be like, cool, that's someone that's sort of <laughs> researching possible thousand X ones. There's 5% of my money that's like enough in my risk portfolio and I don't have to like waste time thinking about it, but know that like, I got some exposure to nuts stuff 
and mm-hmm. not having it in other areas would be would be great. If you want to go start a fund for thousand next things, that's there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have two more smaller points. So one is don't buy anything that's being sold to you. Mm. I found that also very strong. Basically, he says like once you you get a name in a city uh, as an investor or as a fund manager, people will call you trying to sell you stocks, and so the best deals are the ones that don't need to be sold, I guess, right? It's pretty much very similar in VC world. If a company comes to me out of nowhere asking like, oh, we're fundraising, you know that on average that deal is going to be not as good as a deal that you hear about from another investor that they're already you know, investing in because they know the founders and the founders are like in stealth mode, you know, starting a business and, you know, investors are literally chasing them or asking them if they can invest. And so... Yeah, I found that also a very strong point. And always, if, if someone is trying to make you invest in something, think about why they're trying to get you to invest in it. Mm. Um, if they have something to win, then don't invest. That's basically uh, Guy Spears' role. And uh, I think it's yeah makes so much sense. Yeah, definitely. And it can be a hard one because you sort of are affected by people. And that's certainly something I found was in trying to get investment it's harder over Zoom calls and things when people are a bit more at a distance and they've got like lots of other stuff that they can kind of review analytically. Whereas like in person, people just like, oh, this person's nice. I like them. <laughs> I want to help them and stuff. And they're more likely to invest in you. And so the, on the opposite so way around, true. if you're trying to get investment, try and sway them with your personality and being there in real life for sure. Yeah. And um, if you're an investor, be more calculated. And I did, there was one other point that I forgot to mention was it talks about like hiring people and like the most successful hires generally happens not from like an advertised position, but because he's observed the person in their mm. candid moments where they're being themselves and you know they're being exposed, but you see like what their true character is like. And you can't really get that in an interview where someone is obviously putting on a show or through like their, what they've been putting their best foot forwards on their, in their CV and stuff. But if you can see them somewhere else beforehand and be like, wow, that person's great. And then hire them and stuff, that's cool. And that's part of also why he was like, sending letters to people that he thought was good is just sort of share like hey he's a great person and just always be nice and helpful to people and if you are just like like that all the time you're more likely to have people realize that you're great and try and offer you good positions and Mm -hmm. or like we met your friend david who runs a games company and he spoke about like how he hires people and like well i've got one friend that would be perfect for the the kind of people like that so I, i recommended him because i've sent him in his candid moments and i know that he's great and like fortune is more likely to come to him because if I just know that he's great and would recommend him to anyone, whereas other people that mm. I spend a lot of time with, I'm like, okay, fine, but I'm not going to sort of go out of my way to recommend you to someone because I haven't like blown my brains with how great you are. Kind of thing. So true. My um, the best colleague I ever had was in was in um, a previous company, the payments company, and so he was a student, and this happened before I, I even joined the company. But he, so he was a student, and he was writing a dissertation about payments companies, and so he yeah. got in touch with the founder of the company and. Mm. The founder of the company, like after one meeting, decided, okay, so you're going to work with us and it doesn't like, we'll figure out what you're going to do, but I want you on my team. And that guy, like his name is Ken. So Ken, if you listen to this massive shout out, you're awesome. Um, That guy is honestly like in any type of company I ever built, like I'm going to try to get that guy on my team because he's freaking awesome. Um, Like he will work his ass off to make shit happen. And that's so inspiring. Yeah. I've met a few people along the way now that I'm like, <laughs> they're on my list of like, just hire yeah, yeah. as soon as you have the t- chance, it's like, exactly. they should be involved. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So many good people out there. 
Cool. I'm glad cool. I made that point. Um, those were like my main takeaways from this book. Do you have any more or nah, uh, should no, we go into, uh, into rating? Oh, not quite around temperament is more important IQ when it comes to investing at the list. So I think we've just spoken about anyway. Then having structural ways of doing things is an advantage. Man, there's actually more interesting stuff in this than, than you think, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, a, like, it, was, it was dense, even though it was also very readable. Yeah. Good book. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I, I through this conversation and we've had this right. We're yeah. through talking. We're like, mm, there's more in this than what you thought initially, and then uh, we, it increases the score. Anyway, I mean, yeah, I think I discussed my main takeaways. There's actually like a bunch more in there, so yeah, that's mm. um, oh. but it's good for me. I mean, we're already at almost 50 minutes, so perhaps it's time to yeah. Um, one one final quote: greed can be good depending on what you desire. Which yeah, if you're desiring trying to. Uh, make the world a better place or do something valuable for your friends mm. being a bit greedy about it is i guess good and being greedy with your time like going and living in places mm. where you have more time for yourself um, giving away the whole time to others makes sense again like relates to everything else already but just a different way of looking at it and now let's uh do some reviews nico what's your score i always go first i don't think it's fair let's let's swap okay I mean, isn't it better to go first than you're not biased by the other one? Okay, so I'm going to give this book. I think this book is, you know, this is one of these books that you can have anyone read, I feel. It's an easy read or an easy listen, and you don't have to be like an investor to take stuff away from this. And so I'm going to give this book an 8 out of 10. It's not like mind-blowing, but it's a nice read, and I think the lessons here are, are great. Mm, for sure. I very much agree. I had an 8.5 written down, so I will stick with that. It wasn't quite like a nine, like everyone should read it. I think it's one of those books that maybe I could have read when I was younger and actually like missed a lot of the good things, as in I did find, but maybe that's sort of general maturity anyway. But I don't think it's necessarily perfect for everyone. And perhaps like how to win friends and influence people is a bit more like how to be a good person and sort of be valuable and a bit more tools for it. You sort of allude to a lot of stuff that if you're ready for it, you can break it down and like, there is lots of great things in it. But yeah, it's super mm. readable, really good book, lots of insights. Uh, I think most people could read it and enjoy it, even if they weren't crazy into investing. I felt like a little bit missold, but I thought I might understand a bit more about value investing from it. He doesn't go into it that much. Mm. And the way it, I expected it to be to what it was was a bit different, which is like a mild negative point for me, but actually it was still great. So I'm not at all disappointed that I read it <laughs> in that sense. So anyway, 8.5. Right. That's my that was my cool. score. Good score. Cool. Good score. All right. So that's this book then. As our next book in this series on investing, and I feel it could be like a long series, so we haven't yet decided all of the books we're going to read. There might be a few. Anyway, so the next book is going to be The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness, written by Morgan Housel. Sam just sold me on this book, so that's what we're going to read. Uh, very excited. Yeah, I mean, I um, haven't read it. Yeah. I've just... Uh, a framework for how to think about money, I think, is really important because um, basically most people equate money to happiness like pretty linearly, but they then mm. sacrifice happiness trying to get money and they completely mess up the whole like life success and enjoyment mm. actor and trying to work out how to do that in a correct way. I think it's great. And just like I think we all had like friends or people that you've worked with or something that just seem to act very rationally around money, do odd things. And um yeah it can mess up like relationships and lots of different stuff so i think it's great to actually go deeper into the psychology of money and there's a book about it so let's read it yeah <laughs> all right so uh make sure if you want to read it with us 
that'd be great. Feel free to uh, to let us know your thoughts. If you have any recommendations of other books that we should read, uh, you can let us know as well. Yeah, and with that, that's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to give us a, a good rating if you enjoyed. Share with your friends. And uh, yeah, look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating and share with your friends. If you'd like to ask us a question or give us a comment, feel free to join us on Reason. Reason is Sam's startup that is building a social podcasting app. It is a place where Sam and I listen to podcasts and share ideas and insights. It'd be great if you would hang out with us there. Thanks again and speak to you in the next episode. Cheers.